Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the proposals from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders for a wealth tax, and how these proposals run afoul of not just Republican fat cats, as you would expect, but Democratic fat cats as well. Clips today come from Jim Hightower, The Majority Report, Off Kilter, The Young Turks, Start Making Sense, The Brian Lehrer Show, Strange Days, and The Zero Hour. The rich are different from you and me. For one thing, they're rich. Among the super-rich, though, there tends to be a peculiar sense that their net worth is a testament to their true worthiness. Thus, they seem to cling desperately to the very idea of being extremely wealthy. This leads to one specific difference between them and us. Most of us favor a wealth tax to help bridge the gaping chasm of inequality in our society. The rich do not. Indeed, we hear shrieks of abject horror and cries of doom coming from corporate boardrooms and other defenders of the plutocratic order. It would be comical if they weren't so pathetic. They exclaim that such a tax will destroy entrepreneurial motivation, sap innovation, punish success, and, get this, spur a wave of divorces. The psyches of the rich are so fragile, goes this line of bull that a tiny tax on people with more than $50 million in wealth would keep them from getting out of bed in the morning. Jamie Dimon, a billionaire Wall Street banker, disingenuously asserts that super-wealthy people like him would, quote, be happy to pay more in taxes. But he fears the government would just squander it on giveaways, quote, to interest groups and stuff like that. I have to admit that Jamie does know his stuff— After all, he weaseled billions of dollars from us taxpayers to bail out his bank during the 2007 Wall Street crash. Far from squandering revenues on such welfare cases as Diamond, those supporting the wealth tax specifically call for the money to fund universal access to higher education, free health care for all, restoration and expansion of our national infrastructure, and other direct efforts to restore the common good. This is Jim Hightower saying, to help advance passage of the wealth tax and our nation's democratic ideals, go to Citizens for Tax Justice, www.ctj.org. New data from the Census Bureau released last week show that income inequality in the U.S. last year reached the highest level on record since the government began tracking it in 1967. These new figures come as the Trump tax law that lavished some $2 trillion in tax cuts on the nation's ultra-rich and wealthy corporations enters its second year as law. Against this backdrop, the idea of addressing historic levels of inequality through a wealth tax is gaining steam on the 2020 campaign trail with a growing chorus of candidates for the Democratic nomination releasing ambitious proposals that have many at the top of the economic ladder screaming socialism and claiming that such proposals would cripple economic growth. To dig into the idea of a wealth tax, how it would work, and whether there's any truth to the scaremongering claims about what it would do to the economy, I'm thrilled to bring back my good friend Michael Linden, the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. Michael Linden, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So while we can't get into specific candidates or their plans, uh, and, and, and that's not where we're necessarily going to go with this conversation, the notion of a wealth tax is a big issue that has come up front and center in the 2020 debate. So before we get into kind of any of the claims that are being made and uh, kind of how those stack up, uh, let's back up and, and actually explain how would a wealth tax work? Yeah, sure. So that's a great, that's a great question. So, um, you know, to understand that, you sort of have to step back and say, like, what is the difference between income and wealth? Because uh, we have an income tax, right? And we, we tax people based on the money that they make in a given year. That's, that's income. Income is the flow of money to a, to a person or a household in a given year. Um, Wealth is the accumulation of any savings or assets uh, or capital that that comes from that income. So, you know, if you make a lot of income, you aren't spending all of it, so you're socking some of that away in, in some form or another, and that accumulates wealth. And so the big difference between, uh, obviously, the two things are related, right? You, you, if you have a lot of income, it's, it's a, it's a, good bet that you're going to be building wealth. If you don't have a lot of income, it's a pretty good bet that you aren't going to be able to accumulate wealth. Although there are some people who have an enormous amount of wealth and not a lot of income because they don't need it, because they don't work, because they just inherited it, because they are sitting around enjoying the fruits of somebody else's labor, and uh, they don't really have a lot of income. Which actually brings me to the wealth tax. Uh, the idea of a wealth tax is to get at those very, very large accumulations of money, of assets, of capital that are kind of sitting around not being particularly productive, that people at the very, 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 very top didn't really earn. They may have earned some of it, but they definitely didn't earn all of it. And... Um, and it's an enormous amount of money uh, because it's it's untaxed. It's largely untaxed. We do not tax uh, wealth uh, except in a couple of specific instances. So, for example, property taxes um, are a form of a wealth tax, right? It's a it's a tax on an asset that somebody owns as opposed to income that they make. And so, we do have property taxes in this country, which are basically wealth taxes. And the idea here is to apply that concept to more than just one kind of asset, like real estate is one kind of wealth, but there's also stocks and bonds and uh, art and, you know, the small island that, you know, rich people own or something like that. So that's that's the, the biggest difference between an income tax and a wealth tax. And and the way it would work is uh, is, is actually, you know, at the top level, relatively simple. Every year, the very, very, very wealthy would have to report on their own net assets, how much do they own, and then they'd have to pay a tax um, on on that after some threshold, depending on the design of the wealth tax. Um, you know, various various ones are in, in, at set that threshold in different places, but they all sort of started like tens of millions of dollars. So most, the vast majority of Americans would pay nothing uh, under a wealth tax, and then the very, very tippy top would pay uh, a small amount on their 
on their um, wealth. And in terms of who would be hit, I mean, you're, you're emphasizing, right, people who own a small island or like many, many, many yachts. Um, uh, I, I, uh, Paul Krugman wrote in the Times this week actually talking about some of the different proposals for a wealth tax. And I, I thought this sort of summed it up nicely. He was talking about who would be hit by these types of, of taxes. He writes, the only people who would be directly affected by these tax proposals are those who more or less literally have more money than they know what to do with. I thought that summed it up pretty well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you could probably fit, I mean, again, it depends on the exact threshold, but you can probably fit the number of people who would pay a wealth tax into a rather large stadium, right? Like, that's that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of people. We're talking about tens of thousands. Uh, and it's it's the wealthiest people in the world, essentially. And they they have so much money that they they, they can't spend it all. They literally uh, don't, like, like Krugman said, they don't know what to do with it. There's, you know, you, you have uh, Jeff Bezos, who is musing that he has so much money, the only thing he can do with it is, like, try to colonize the moon. Uh, you know, that's great. We should colonize the moon, I guess. That's not my area of expertise. But, like, that's certainly not somebody who we should be worried about uh, paying more in taxes. Now, meanwhile, as the idea of a wealth tax has started to gain steam on the campaign trail, started to be an idea that's that's seriously being talked about by uh, a range of economists and policymakers, opponents have responded pretty sharply. Um, uh, the the central claim that we hear from opponents of, of the idea of a wealth tax is that it will be bad for economic growth. Right. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is, is one of those voices. He, he's put it as follows, you're going to completely disincentivize capital investment, which is going to be very, very, very bad for economic growth. He says um, a, a New York Times article actually just this week put it uh, as follows. The idea of redistributing wealth by targeting billionaires is stirring first debates, fierce, I should say, debates at the highest ranks of academia and business, with opponents arguing it would cripple economic growth, sap the motivation of entrepreneurs who aspire to be multimillionaires and, and set off a search for loopholes. So there's there's a lot in there, but if if that's sort of the the base of uh, claims that are being made about this new idea as it gains steam, um, I, I'd love to sort of walk through them in turn. And the, yeah. the the first claim there is that it would sap economic growth. Right. So this is this is a new idea, but an old argument. Uh, and and we've been told for decades now that when you tax rich people, uh, it will hurt the economy. And of course, the the the, the mirror image of that argument, which is that if you cut taxes for rich people, it will help the economy. And and those things are just fundamentally false, and they come from a fundamental misunderstanding of how the economy works and where prosperity actually comes from. Prosperity does not come from the bank accounts of the top 1%. It comes from everyday people going about their everyday lives, going to work, producing, creating more things, innovating, uh, creating demand for new goods and services. That's actually where prosperity and growth come from. Cutting taxes for people at the top does not trickle down. It never has trickled down. It never will trickle down. And so fundamentally, that argument that uh, Secretary Mnuchin was making is just, a, is just a form of that kind of trickle-down argument. If you raise taxes on rich people, then they're gonna, they won't invest or they won't innovate or they won't create. Well, the truth is, you know, all those innovators and creators that, that people talk about, uh, you know, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, they, they started all those companies, um, 
when tax rates were higher, <laughs> not lower, uh, and it didn't stop them. And the truth is that same is the same thing is is true here. Nobody is going to not create a new thing or or pursue a new idea because they think that at some point in the future, when they have tens and tens of millions of dollars that they literally don't know what to do with, they might pay slightly higher in taxes. And on the flip side, of course, they, they the um, the opponents never acknowledge the fact that income inequality and wealth inequality are themselves very negative for the economy. Uh, when you get extreme levels of inequality, and you know you mentioned at the beginning of the show, income inequality is at its highest level uh, since we've been measuring it. Wealth inequality is even higher than income inequality. Uh, these things are really distortive and they are drags on, on growth. They distort the markets to the extent that we, that we need to use markets. They really distort them. They undermine them. Uh, they really get in the way of opportunity. Uh, and they really undermine stability, economic stability. Uh, and some, some research even shows that they lead to lower, uh, sorry, slower levels of, of growth and, and deeper recessions. So the, on the one hand, it's just not true that cutting taxes for rich people is any good for the economy. And on the other, inequality itself and massive concentrations of wealth and power at the top are themselves very bad for the economy. It's like it's like economic pollution, right? It is it is bad for the health of the economy to have that much power and wealth concentrated in the hands of a few. Uh, it's it. It just turns into sort of extractive, uh, exploitative uh, economies that we've seen in other countries. That we've seen what's happened, what happens in other in other countries and other times when economies go that direction. So, a wealth tax not only would not hurt the economy; it's much more likely to help the economy by taxing away some of that excess power and wealth that is really not doing anybody any good at the top, and really could be. Um, could a be put to better use elsewhere, and uh, kind of reduces some of that really negative economic pollution at the top. Today's episode is sponsored by the Forecast Fest, your source for the latest election news, from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avalon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Each episode, they'll give you the most up-to-date forecast for who's ahead and behind in the race for the White House and for Congress. But they won't just give you the what, they'll also give you the why. Want to understand how the impeachment inquiry might affect the 2020 presidential race? Want to get in the weeds on jungle primaries or polling methodology? You want to get unique political analysis rooted in data on major campaign issues like healthcare and climate change? From historical context to the latest polling, Harry, Kate, and John have you covered. Subscribe now to the Forecast Fest to stay informed of every twist and turn on the road to November 2020. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Bernie came out with a um, a new plan. Um, he had two new plans actually released in the past two days. One is a um, a plan to eliminate Americans' medical debt. They will um, 
negotiate and pay off past due medical bills and collections that credit agencies have reported. Uh, they would also ban the collection of medical debts beyond the statute of limits state and limitations and instruct the IRS to conduct a review of the billing and collection practices of the nearly 3000 nonprofit hospitals. So uh, broadly assault uh, medi- uh, medical debt. The other big plan that he dropped was a wealth tax that you recall Elizabeth Warren um, had introduced a wealth tax some time ago. This one is uh, even more dramatic. It would create an annual tax that would apply to households with it. Now I want everybody to sit down because I don't want you, you're going to freak out about this. A lot of you. It's going to apply to households. So it's not just an individual it's a married couple who have this amount together with a net worth above $32 million. Yep. Uh, This will affect 180,000 households in total, the top 0.1%. He would create a 1% tax on net worth above 32 million with increasing marginal rates that top out at 8% on net worth over $10 billion. So those people are going to get hit hard. That is... For single filers, the brackets would be halved, meaning the tax would kick in at $16 million. Yeesh. I got to start looking into uh, some places in the Bahamas or something. I mean, I'm an ardent Bernie supporter, but it's disturbing on some level when you look at like the stats that most Americans can't get, you know, $500 together as an example. This is the type of thing that gives us a brand for being disconnected from middle class concerns. Here is Stuart Varney, the expert, brought on to Fox and Friends to explain why this is so bad. Senator Elizabeth Warren has a wealth tax proposal. If you've got if you are worth $50 million or more, you would pay a wealth tax of 2% each and every year on your accumulated wealth. Axios reports that Bernie Sanders has an even more aggressive wealth tax. In other words, he would take more than the 2% over 50 million that Elizabeth Warren would take. Either way, they are rotten proposals. Number one, they're a brand new form of taxation, and who needs that? Mm-hmm. And number two, <laughs> it assumes that the government will do more good with the money they take off you than those re- wealthy individuals can do with it themselves, like create jobs, innovate in technology, put their money to work in different kind of ways. It's a rotten idea well, from they, top to bottom. Well, when they sit down on their laptop, they say, wow, that's a populist message. Let's blame the successful people for the struggles I'm feeling. Maybe for middle class and working class, they say, I like that idea. Do you think it would do more? Pause it, pause it, pause it for one second. I just want to go over. I just want to review. I wish we had the ability to put a quick Chiron up, but we could we could show the two points that he makes against these proposals. First one is who needs that? That's literally it creates a new tax. Who needs that? That's the first reason why you would not want to do this, because who needs it? And the second one is, do you think that government will do better with this accumulated wealth tax than those who are sitting on this accumulated wealth? Now, definitionally, accumulated wealth is not being invested in creating jobs. It is, it is accumulating 
It's a hoard that they're sitting it's, on. It is exactly that. Is that Almost a populist idea that's popping up in your head? It's where the word hoard comes there. from. Exactly. It's definitionally. Um, people, people create jobs to the extent that they create jobs with their businesses. This is not a corporate tax. This is on individuals. None of that money that these individuals are sitting on create jobs. Now, to be fair, maybe they are spending this money on a McMansion or 10 or a extra 100 or 200 foot boat, but it's not that 2% or 1% above 32 million that they're spending. Right? Like the idea that like, oh, I only have $32 million between the two of us, sweetheart. We're going to have to pay another $3 million in taxes. That's going to leave us only with $29 million. So I guess we're not going to go out and spend $22 million on the uh, house that we were going to get or the boat or the car. And I they're mean, demonetizing YouTube. There is no, exactly, <laughs> there is no scenario where this is going to stop wealthy person from buying what they want to buy the fact of the matter is they can't find enough to buy but let's let um Stuart Vani have one more uh, crack at this their money to work in different kind of ways it's a rotten idea well, from they, top to bottom well, when they sit down on their laptop they say wow that's a populist message let's blame the successful people for the struggles i'm feeling maybe for middle class and working class they say yeah. i like that right. idea do you think it would do more good to take money off wealthy people and give it to other people that's how that's not the way yeah yes the answer is yes it would in fact it would um the, there's a tremendous amount of data that shows that it would. Uh, I can just tell you, like, at, at first, the concentration of wealth is uh, underfunding our Social Security program. Uh, the concentration of, of wealth is slowing the velocity of money. It is not uh, traveling through the system as much. Not as many people are touching it because you have it all. Um, you have, what, three families in this country who have more wealth than the Bottom 50% of the people? Of course, of course it would. There's not even any question. In fact, all you can come up with for the reasons why it's no good is who needs that? The under uh, Bernie's plan, this is how much uh, these more, these billionaires would owe this year. The Walton family would owe $14.8 billion. Jeff Bezos, $8.9 billion. Charles Koch, $3.2 billion. Sheldon Adelson, $2.6 billion. Rupert Murdoch, $1.28 billion. Just contemplate, this is a 1%, or I guess on, on some of these guys, an 8% tax. The idea would be within 15 years, you would basically take out billionaires. You would tax at a rate in which they cannot um, accumulate this kind of wealth. And so good for uh, Bernie. I don't know uh, if we will see it anytime soon, but the idea, the, uh, the fact that two of the leading candidates are debating how much should we take from billionaires, I, um, 
I like quite a bit. There's this a contrast that kind of points out how well they aren't using any they aren't using this money for anything useful because as uh, this Yahoo Finance clip they points out it's all stuck into things that aren't very liquid. Um, That's right. Okay, so yeah, this, here's another example of this. Here we go. Um, the, here is uh, they're they're looking at this on Yahoo and they're trying to figure out like well, how how do we talk about this? Like how how can we possibly make it sound sympathetic that someone with over thirty two million dollars just parked somewhere is in some way um, well it's going to be complicated. It's going to be so complicated to do this. It's not. It's bad for the market, but it's also very early in the primary season. And as is the case in every primary season, it's all about appealing to your base. So the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warren wing of the party, however defined, is appealing to that base and almost sort of one-upping. I see your 2% wealth tax and raise you up to, I think, Bernie's proposal was as high as 8%. Yeah. But the statement he tweeted this morning at, I think, 901. Yeah, about I don't 8%, believe, 8% on over $10 billion worth. 8% on, I'm sorry. $10 billion. 10 billion, or 10 billion or more. Yeah, for, for, for couples, I think, that is. Yeah. Couples. Um, yeah. The practical, leaving aside the legal challenges to it, the practicality right. is hard. People who have that much money don't have it in, in a bank account or in, in a brokerage account. It's held in illiquid, hard-to-value assets, be it private companies, be it real estate, be it art, uh, for that matter. Valuing those things on an annual basis has all kinds of Right, of because friction. it's not... Pause it. Now, there's a lot of friction uh, in valuing. I mean, because... Because all that art that they're hanging out, like those like $20 million paintings that they have in their, in their house, those are creating a lot of jobs because you have to have someone come in and dust it. You have to have someone come in and make sure that the climate is correct in your uh, McMansion so that the canvas does not get too uh, crunchy in your apartment. Dude, we're talking above McMansion at this and, point. Oh, this isn't even McMansion. Yeah. Right. No, it's McMansion. It's for the low mansion. Oh, oh, but I love the idea that that this guy is saying like the the implication is, you know, when Bernie or Warren get into the general election, they're going to have to soften a little bit to bring in a wider coalition. They'll probably have to drop that wealth tax down to you know, to to drop it up to like it'll be forty million or above. The one or thing, billionaires yeah. lawnmower yeah. over Trump in every single debate. Like, oh, you're out here making a big show. Well, I got a tax. How yep. about that? I mean, it's just I don't. I mean, I know it will never change because this is you know it, it's not empirically based, but it's just it, it's stunning. Like every single poll says socially moderate to even center right economically center left to populist like that is the this wherever the elusive center exists that's what it is and these people just still talk as if there's somebody in there's gonna be a lot of someone in akron making like fifty thousand dollars a year is like you know what i'm pretty concerned about this wealth tax because there's really creative people who run the economy and i i sure wouldn't want them to jeopardize my lower middle class job Elizabeth Warren is a proponent of a wealth tax, and she has proposed it, and we'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. But The Hill did a write-up on the establishment Democrats' reaction 
to this wealth tax. So what is it first off? Uh, it would impose a 2% tax on the wealth of people with more than $50 million in assets. While those with assets more than $1 billion would face a 3% tax. Warren has said the tax would bring in $7.25 trillion in revenue over a decade. And she would use that revenue uh, from the plan to pay for student debt relief, universal access to pre-K, child care, and increased pay for child workers. But Democrats in positions of power in Congress are lukewarm at best. Richard Neal, House Ways and Means Committee chair says, I think that one of the problems with it when you examine it is how much income does it generate, said Neal, who in an interview with The Hill repeatedly pivoted to higher income and corporate taxes in response to questions about the wealth tax. Be- uh, and Brett, before you go on and uh, looking forward to attacking Nancy Pelosi on this as well and so many of the other corporate Democrats, but I wanna really pause on Richard Neal for a couple of reasons. So uh, he asked a question and I have an answer, so uh, no problem. He said, well, how much would it really generate? trillion dollars, okay, okay, so that would pay for a ton of progressive priorities, but that's okay, because Richard Neal doesn't wanna do those progressive policies anyway. He was appointed by Nancy Pelosi as the head of the Ways and Means Committee. That is the most powerful committee in the House because it controls the budget. He is the guy who is actively not resisting Donald Trump. New York State says, here's Trump's tax returns, Neal will not take them. That is stunning, unbelievable. All the lies that the Democratic Party told about how they want his tax returns, New York State passed the law saying, here it is. The one guy who could ask for it is the head of the Ways and Means Committee. And Richard Neal says, I don't want him. That's There's- unbelievable. He said, Green New Deal, not going to introduce it. Uh, Medicare for all, not going to introduce it. But what does he do? Well, other than protecting Donald Trump and not uh, being in favor of wealth taxes, in other words, protecting his donors, oh, wait a minute. The other thing he does is, Take money from Republican donors. Oh, you know who we took $11,000 from? Stephen Ross, the guy who is the head of Equinox and SoulCycle that is throwing the giant fundraiser for Donald Trump as we speak. $250,000 a pop, I think, right? For the top donors. For the top donors. Ross is- got to be a lot of Big Macs. That's right. You can contribute as little as $5,000 all the way up to $250,000, a giant fundraiser for Donald Trump. But he also gives to sell out corporate Democrats because you got to make sure enough Democrats vote for the tax cuts or block progressives from repealing the tax cuts. So Ross goes, "Oh, Elizabeth Warren's plan, how much would it really bring? I mean, would we really do that to the wealthy who are all my donors? Oh, golly gee, I have the same donors as Donald Trump. How did that happen? I don't know." It gets even more disgusting when you look at some of the other quotes that I'm sure Brett pulled Brett's going to pull up in a second where it's just like it's literally a Republican defense. It is virtually indistinguishable, especially my favorite one, which is when um, uh, he decried Ron Wyden said that uh, the well-connected and high flyers are going to squirrel away funds in tax havens like the Cayman Islands and pay lower tax for capital gains. But when pressed for his views on a wealth tax, he said he would only point to his own tax proposals. Like the fact that they, the, the fact that this is uh, still a, a talking point that well the wealthy are going to run away like uh, there's going to be capital flight or they're going to go and hide their assets in the Cayman Islands. Okay, guess what? First of all, we're done being held hostage by the wealthy in this country. What an what an insanely idiotic perspective to have, which is like oh well they're just going to take their money away. We we are generating this money for them. This is our labor. They can't just take it's it also away. Not getting taxed now. Yeah, and and they're already taking it away. So here's what we do, we we seize them. 
Uh, 100% expropriation, 100%. Seize it if you if you if you are if you are taking your funds away. It's one of the least patriotic things I can think of in my entire life. If you're taking your uh, well, now I'm back on your side. Yeah, if you're taking this money away and you're putting it in a and if you're hiding it, put forward a law that makes it illegal and then seize it and then take take all of that or take all of that money away. And fund these programs. So, look, I don't know about expropriation, and Hassan and I debated capitalism on one of our shows, Azure Prop. Check it out. But overall, he is right, though. Like, they go hide the money in the Cayman Islands in this respect. They and then they say, and then, well, okay, we hit it, so there's nothing you can do about it. Of course, there's something we can do about it. First of all, you hide your money anywhere outside of America, you no longer ever get a contract from the United States government. Period. You're done. Okay. And a lot of these guys have their companies have contracts through defense. Contractors, oil companies, etc. And the list goes on and on and on. Uh, hey, Miami Dolphins owner, that's Stephen Ross, the same guy who owns Equinox. You're not getting a tax break anymore in Miami for for the Dolphins because if you're hiding your money in the Cayman Islands, I guess you're a citizen of the Cayman Islands. Okay, so, we, so there's a thousand things we can do. But Haas is also right to point out why Wyden's quote is among the worst because it is the classic Democratic line of, well, I guess there's nothing we could do. And so why do the Republican donors give to corporate Democrats? So that the corporate Democrats could come and go, oh, I guess there's nothing we could do. Hey guys, there's nothing we could do. The Republicans gave them everything and we're losers and we're gonna lay down like a goddamn mat right in front of them and let them walk all over us. It's good cop, bad cop. They've been doing this the whole time. By the way, you have choices. On Richard Neal, there's a wonderful justice Democrat running against them. AlexMorse.com, we'll put the link down below, M-O-R-S-E, AlexMorse.com. Go donate to him, volunteer to him. Richard Neal, you wanna cry about that? I don't give a goddamn what you think. I want actual progressives in Congress who are gonna hold the Republicans accountable and fight against them and fight for progressive policies. You wanna go be a Republican? Go be a goddamn Republican. We're gonna run you out of Congress. Uh-oh, you're in the DCCC blacklist, Jank. Uh-oh. Oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> I'm gonna do a blacklist of anybody who works with the DCCC, and I'm not kidding. Or as <laughs> Biden calls it, the DCCC poor list. Um, call back. Okay, so uh, just in terms of how much support this wealth tax has among voters, I thought it was important to list. Uh, graphic seven, two thirds of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, favor a plan by Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts to impose a so-called wealth tax on assets exceeding $50 million. And then AOC's tweet on it I thought was great. Wealth tax versus capital gains tax versus 70% marginal tax over 10 million a year. Porque no los tres. Look, wealth redistribution is coming. I don't think these people understand it. Actually, you know what? That's not true. The wealthy are very class conscious, and I keep forgetting to mention this. They know that this is coming. It's either going to come by way of policy or by way of pitchforks. And you guys have the chance to decide right now. You can give us the breadcrumbs or decide uh, or no longer have a decision in this process when we take yeah. all of the pie. I've talked to two particularly wealthy people about this, and one said you just need a valve on it. And then also there was a there was a, a, a open letter signed by 20 million multimillionaires said please tax us, we need it. But a lot of people do say that they're like, I know you need a safety valve just because if the wealth get, wealth gets redistributed too much toward the extraordinarily wealthy, then there has to be some kind of recourse, and we don't want that. So just. Yeah, that's yeah. enough. Yeah, even and then also I talked they to call an, it riot tax, an extremely right? wealthy dude who was just like, yeah, wealth tax, I, I would pay it, I need to pay it. Well, we know because they just did a poll of uh, millionaires and yeah. 60% of them said raise our taxes. And uh, you should check out Pitchfork Economics by Nick Hanauer, it's a great podcast on our network. He talks about it all the time. Back to Pelosi. Pelosi said that Trump's tax cuts for the rich was the quote, 
worst law Congress had ever passed. So then the Democrats retake the House, and you know what she does? She has not sought to repeal it. Paygo, and then she she pushed for Paygo after. I know, which makes it harder to repeal these things and do any progressive priorities. But wait, 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 if it's the worst law that's ever been passed, wouldn't you immediately try to repeal it? No, and then this article, I actually, the Hill did a great job here in just pointing out the hypocrisy. But they didn't call it hypocrisy, just gave the quotes and the hypocrisy is obvious. They go and talk to Larry Summers and he expresses skepticism over it. <laughs> Larry Summers is the most corporate Democrat there ever was and Elizabeth Warren blocked him from being the head of the Fed. He hates Elizabeth Warren. So if you go to Larry Summers, of course he's <laughs> gonna express skepticism, right? Then they go to a Democratic consultant and he's like, "Oh, this won't play well in the country. What are you talking, two thirds? If you can't, look, if you're Nancy Pelosi, Richard Neal, you're a Democratic consultant, whoever you are in the Democratic Party, if you think you can't win with two thirds of the American people on your side, you're an incompetent loser and you should immediately step down and go into another line of work. Because if a politician goes, I mean, I only have two thirds of the country <laughs> on my side, how, how will I ever win? And it's that, it's, and you guys know, it's not that they're incompetent, it's that they're sellouts. They take the same donations, that consultant lives on donations, on the donor money from the wealthy. And so what they do is play good cop, bad cop on us. And so these corporate Democrats are part of the Republican game. And so when the media says, Cenk, they're on your team. Why are you challenging other Democrats like this? Because they're not on our team, they're on their team. It's so obvious that you would know that if you actually did report it. You know who else is not on the team? Joe Biden, who actually ended up solidifying the sunsetting Bush era wealthy tax cuts when it was politically feasible for us to fight back. So thank God he's the number one candidate for us, the most electable candidate at a time when the majority of Americans also want to increase the taxes on the wealthy. I gotta say one last thing about that because Haas is so right. That deal that Biden struck with McConnell to make the Bush tax cuts permanent was so bad that even other corporate Democrats like Michael Bennett who hates Medicare for all is was so livid he wrote a whole book about it saying <laughs> I can't believe how much Biden sold us out to McConnell and the Republicans. They made 94% of Bush's tax cuts for the rich permanent. Even Bush couldn't do that, Karl Rove couldn't do that, Dick Cheney couldn't do that. At a time when that. Harry Reid had every bargaining chip at, on his side so that, that uh, McConnell was actually ready to concede. Uh, you can find out more about that actually on Ryan Grimm's latest book, We Got People. All exactly, right. which is at shoptyt.com. So Biden is not only working with the Republicans and brags about it, but on top of that, he's also incompetent. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and you probably don't think about your socks all that often. Or maybe you do, no judgment, but if you don't, it's probably because there's not that much to think about. Whereas I have been a convert to Bombas socks for years, and I still appreciate each pair for their style and comfort when I put them on. And they've even come out with a new line of my preferred choice, their performance running and workout socks. And I'm happy to see that they have evolved even further beyond all the fancy features that I liked them for before. But the thing that I think will put you over the top is their mission, which goes far beyond selling socks. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell great socks to customers and give away great socks to those in need, one for one. 
to take advantage of our special offer by your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. Does the difficulties of all the people we've talked about mean that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is our next president? I think that, I mean, if I were calling it today, I I think that uh, those are the ones that are most likely to have a shot. I mean, I feel like Warren maybe has a slight edge just because she's able to bring people on board that um, Bernie uh, alienate. Although, I mean, I, I don't want to rule out the zombie scenario which is that like a brainless, inarticulate, uh, you know, half-dead creature could defeat everybody. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a Democrats 2020, dawn of the dead. (laughs) So we we read that the big donors are pulling away from Joe Biden. The Wall Street Democrats who want Biden or Mayor Pete or maybe even Hillary, their problem is not that Elizabeth Warren cannot win. It's the opposite. They are afraid that she will win and tax the heck out of their wealth. She will lose the support of the Wall Street Democrats following out the scenario that she gets the nomination. How serious a problem is that? Is that a devastating, uh, uh, game-changing fact? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, I think that the um, uh, what Warren is doing and what um, sort of following in the footsteps of Bernie, but also interestingly following in oh, the footsteps of Obama 2008, is small donor revolution, like really getting a lot of the small donors. And in some ways, it's a gamble because, like, can the Democrats raise enough money from small donors in a national election in a way that nobody has really ever done before? But, I mean, the numbers that Warren and especially Sanders are racking up are really impressive and do indicate that there's a kind of body of the population out there that that would support uh, something like this. And what that would do is really render the sort of impact of Wall Street sort of obsolete. And that that would really change American politics. I mean, if you have, you know, one political party that isn't dependent on Wall Street, then, you know, you could actually do a lot of things that politicians have been afraid to do. And one final note, all of the things that we would like that candidate to do, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie, require that the Democrats at least win three Senate seats. If that doesn't happen, none of this is going to be possible, no matter who's president. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's right. Although I think that things are kind of looking up. I mean, if you actually like look at the recent polls in the kind of states that are up for grabs, Democrats are doing a bit better and Republicans are suffering a bit. So I don't think it's impossible to imagine, uh, you know, President Warren or President Sanders with a Democratic Senate. One of your notes is former Vice President Joe Biden is cleaning up among former bundlers for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, but he's still losing the money race badly. And that's one of the concerns that's in the New York Times article, too, um, that Biden's enthusiasm as reflected or enthusiasm for Biden as reflected by fundraising isn't there as much as they might uh, hope in the Biden campaign. Can you put some meat on the bones of that um, that note in your newsletter? 
Yeah, so it's really interesting. So basically, among the top donors to the Democratic Party, people who give you know five hundred dollar checks or, or max out two hundred eighty thousand or two thousand eight hundred dollars, um, they really like Joe Biden. You know, he he's raking in that money, but Joe Biden just not has has not seen a level of enthusiasm among small donors after the twenty eighteen midterms. Uh, Democratic Party is basically driven mostly by small donors. It's a big change from the past that small donors would make up an important piece, but not the whole pie. Now Democrats are really driven by these small dollar donors. And Biden just isn't catching on there. He just doesn't, not raising money from regular people, people who chip, chip in five, ten, twenty-five dollars on a regular basis or even an irregular basis. That money's going to people like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or candidate like Pete Buttigieg, who is raising money both from these big donors, people who have a lot of money to give, and from your average Joe, so to speak, you know, people who can chip in a little bit here and there. So in the worst case doom and gloom scenario of these Democratic establishment Folks, and I assume that's mostly white, older, wealthy donors who are being described in that Times article. I know you read the piece. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know all of Jonathan's sources, but uh, Jonathan the Martin, class, the Times, Jonathan yeah. Martin. Yeah, oh, the the uh, the wealthy donor class among the Democratic Party is largely men. Uh, there are a lot of women, but it's largely older white men. Uh, and they're they're kind of worried, and they and every, this happens every cycle basically with Democrats. Democrats are never happy with their candidate until they are uh, that they get worried about the quality of their candidate. But in the case of Joe Biden, there probably is a little bit of a reason to worry. Uh, Joe Biden is still, of course, leading in most polls. He, you know, him and Elizabeth Warren are one and two in most Democratic primary polls. But Joe Biden, right now, uh, there's some long-term problems with the structural with the structure of his campaign if he can't fundraise, which is leading to these concerns. So in the worst case, doom and gloom scenario, Biden's too remote. Warren and Sanders are too far left to win the suburbs. Buttigieg has almost no black support, so turnout would be low. Even if that's all true, is no one else in the current field, big as it is, of interest to the people who are looking around outside? Well, apparently not. The problem with both everyone outside of those top five and anyone not in the race is this is structural problems to getting into the race this late. You know, you have to fundraise, you have to hire staff, and a lot of the top Democratic staff has already been hired away by another campaign. You know, there's only so many people who know how to run a campaign, and those people are pretty much snapped up by all the other campaigns. You look at someone like Cory Booker, uh, who for years has been touted as a presidential candidate, just has not caught on with voters for whatever reason. His fundraising has wagged you know, beyond the top of the pack. He, he will be in this race for a little bit longer, for sure. He's not going anywhere anytime soon, but he does not have the resources to build out a strong campaign if they want to get behind him. Someone like Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, another you know person who is kind of always floated behind the scenes as a potential Biden successor if Biden was to fall just right now is running a very shoestring campaign. He hasn't caught on with voters, hasn't caught on with small dollar donors. And so to go from where someone like Steve Bullock or, or Cory Booker are now to a front of the pack would both need a major swing in the polls and a major investment in resources that right now they can't make. Is there a disconnect between these Democratic establishment figures <laughs> wringing their hands, um, as reported on by the New York Times, that there may be no electable candidate in the field right now. There was a Pew poll in July that found about two-thirds of Democratic and Democratic-leading registered voters, 65%, said they have an excellent or good impression of the Democratic presidential candidates as a group. So is this just like wealthy donors being out of touch with most of the party? 
I mean, it's not unusual for Democratic donors to be out of touch with the party. Look at who's polling about, you know, 30, 40 percent. If you add it up, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, usually not in the top three choices of many donors, but voters are responding to them. You know, it's kind of laughable almost at this point to think another candidate is going to get in the race. Is it possible? Sure. Is there so many structural barriers in the way that would really stop any candidate short of, I don't know, Michelle Obama from having an incredible rise in the polls and being able to set up a legitimate campaign? Absolutely. So Democratic donors, the Democratic thinking class every few years gets worried about their candidates. You know, there was a worry before 2018 midterms that they didn't have the right candidates in the House, they're going to blow it. Democrats won 40 seats. Um, so it's part of being a Democrat, I think, is just having this worry that it all is not going to work out. Anand, is there a a best practice or a case study of the type of person that you're describing, you know, that that fancies themselves as as someone who is is funding movements uh, for the better at the expense of their own power? Would you put a Michael Bloomberg in that category? Would you put a Bill Gates in that category? Do you see a modern day example of someone who, quote, gets it and is doing it right? It's a good question. I'll tell you why I don't name names that way, because the problem is I don't know everything about everyone. And in my experience, if I give you an example of someone whose stuff I know is doing that, you know, one of your listeners is going to come back to me saying, oh, my God, how did you not know that they, you know, <laughs> secretly made all their money selling children's toenails to, you know, make tires out of them or something? Like, you just, you never know. And it's better for me not to, like, I'm not here to, like, give stamps of approval to individuals. But I think what you're getting at is correct. Uh, you know, I do not think Michael Bloomberg is necessarily a great example of this with a lot of what he's done. I think some of the stuff on the environment may be. But, you know, I'm talking about initiatives where instead of funding your own programs, and the Gates people often fund kind of their own programs, their own vision, where you're actually funding, you know, the groundwork for the political solution of those problems by communities, right? So, for example, solving political tr- – so let's say you wanted to work on the issue of a wealth tax, right? First of all, just by wanting to advocate for a wealth tax and increase the odds of a wealth tax happening, whether you do that philanthropically or through money in politics, that's a great example of trinity or class giving. So I'm, I think that's, that's good. Um, and you could still do that in ways where you run some think tank that pushes that agenda. That's still exerting quite a bit of power, but it may be okay. Um, and then you could do that in a way where you're, like, training – people in local communities to have the upper hand when they engage in political debates about tax justice, right? You could imagine an initiative that actually really went down and worked through people who are engaged in a democratic process. I'm riveted by this idea because based on everything you're describing, if if, if one were to make a case on what at least... Uh, in your book, Winners Take All, the ideal philanthropist should be. I, I think one might make a case that the greatest American philanthropist was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was regarded as a traitor of his class, but used the mechanism of government to bring about systematic change more than anything else through the Social Security Act. I can't underscore that enough. That is correct. Let's be very clear. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the greatest, most effective philanthropist in American history. And he did all these things that all these other philanthropists, um, you know, frankly, pale in comparison. You know, they all talk about scale. You know what has a lot of scale? 
the goddamn government. And, you know, he, 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 he was a traitor in his own class to do what was right for the country. Um, and he understood. Obviously, he had the advantage of, you know, being president, which, which they're not. But, but he could have done other things with his life. He understood that if you actually have these values and you believe in equality or justice or whatever it is people say they believe, there's a way to instantiate those values in, you know, the actual lives of people, which is policy and law. And so much else becomes mere rhetoric. So before I let you go, when you look at the landscape uh, into the future, we've got uh, the most consequential election in American history. Do you see anyone on the horizon in the government that has that potential to understand what true philanthropy is about utilizing the levers of political power through the government to re- radically restructure things for the benefit of most Americans. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in some ways my book is like a pair of infrared, you know, glasses that, that somehow lets you see um, a lot of things that may have seemed normal to you in a slightly different way. And, and it's also a pair of such glasses for the election, um, because I think there's a lot of people who talk about the issues um, that matter in this election. There's a lot of people talking about inequality, talking about health care, um, any number of others. I think the lens that my book might give someone is to say the fundamental question in American life is far too many people, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of people, 80 percent of people have had too little power. Um, not just too few resources over the last generation, but too little power that led to having too few resources. And there are essentially, to simplify this for folks, two operating theories in this campaign about how you rectify that, how you fight for those people. Theory number one is you can fight for them and empower them and help them and have them get more resources without disturbing the power of those on top, without bringing down those on top, without making it harder to be a billionaire, without reducing the number of billionaires, right? That's the win-win theory. It's very seductive. Joe Biden is probably the, the, the best exemplar of that, of that theory. And then you have another theory, which is actually in this moment, the only way to do right by most Americans is to actually make life slightly tougher. And I'm using slightly tougher in quotes there because it's still not going to be that tough slightly tougher for those at the very, very top. That in fact, the way to do right by most people is to actually crimp those on the top a little bit and do that via raising taxes on them, having a wealth tax, regulating their industries more, um, forcing them to pay higher wages, you know, having more um, you know, fi- financial um, strangleholds. The second theory is that the only way to actually do right by most Americans is to reduce the power of those on top. And I think, frankly, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are the two who fundamentally believe that. Um, And I think the rest are more in the Biden win-win camp. Bernie and Elizabeth are in the, you know, win-lose camp that I think, frankly, is descriptively accurate in this moment in American history. And, And anyone listening to this who's still on the fence you know, should, should just think honestly about how do you see it? Do you think that we can empower the vast majority of Americans shut out from progress over the last generation um, without, you know, afflicting the comfortable? Do you believe that no one has to actually have their power reined in to, for justice to be done? That's the dominant theory. No question most people generally believe that in our culture. 
And I wrote this book to try to challenge that culture and make people think about a different possibility, which is sometimes at some moments in history, when you could say that about feudalism, you could say that about slavery in the 19th century, you could say about any number of things. There are moments in history where to do right by many people, by a society, to do, to do the just thing. Some people need to have their power reduced or taken away. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are not identical, no matter what anybody tells you. I'm getting a lot of kind of eye-seeing, I should say, and also getting personally a lot of kind of eye-rolling comments from people. They're exactly the same. What do you care which one gets chosen over the other? Well, the fact is, I like Elizabeth Warren a lot. I like Bernie Sanders a lot. I do think they have different ideologies in certain ways. I think uh, they would both go uh, after Wall Street. I think they would both do some really good things. I personally happen to believe that we need a real transformation in the way we review, uh, we view rather our society and our government. So, in that sense, I think you know Bernie has a strength ideologically. Uh, so I applaud him for that, and I think they do have differences in the way they'd approach certain issues. They're certainly rhetorically different. Elizabeth Warren says she's capitalist. Bernie describes himself as a democratic socialist. So, you know, I don't wave away the differences between them. But as I said, uh, I like Elizabeth Warren a lot. Um, I've met her. I like her personally. I like her uh, strength and her uh, willingness to take on uh, powerful economic forces in this country. So, and it's to that last point, I guess I want to speak, because there was a headline recently in CNBC, and the headline is this. Wall Street Democratic donors warn the party will sit out or back Trump if you nominate Elizabeth Warren. Now, Wall Street liberals, that is to say Wall Street Democratic donors, have been telling us for years that they're really liberal people, that they think you're kind of overdoing it on this regulation thing. But when it comes to we democracy, we love our democracy, when it comes to the rights of Muslims or social programs for the poor or uh, uh, erasing social injustice, uh, erasing structural racism, that on all those things we're as good as can be. Just look at our charitable contributions. Just look at the wonderful things we say. Just look at all those checks we've written to Democratic politicians in the past. And please go on us a little easier when it comes to regulation. But really trust us, we're good liberals. They fund groups like Third Way, they, and they tell us we're progressives too. We just have a different view of a couple things. But now the, the mask is off, okay? Uh, when they tell us, when these Democratic donors, uh, here's a senior private equity executive who chose not to be quoted a quote, you're in a box because you're a Democrat and you're thinking, 
I want to help the party, but she, meaning Elizabeth Warren, is going to hurt me. So I'm going to help President Trump. And uh, this senior private exec equity executive spoke on condition of anonymity in fear of retribution by party leaders. Now, let's go back again. These people say they give to Democrats because they're good liberals. They care about liberal causes. Now, we have a president who puts kids in cages. We have a president with a Muslim ban. We have a president who at any moment could do something unhinged in militarily, although frankly, his instincts have been better than a lot of Democrats so far, because at least he hasn't uh, done the worst things. Um, so we have all these things going on. He's playing to the worst uh, right-wing Israeli inclinations, all of the above, all the things you're supposed to care about, maybe not the Palestinians, but all the other things you're supposed to care about are being hurt by Donald Trump, yet, oh, Elizabeth Warren might regulate you a little more, so you're going to help the guy who stands against everything you believe in. Well, then my answer to you, Wall Street executive, is you don't believe in very much. So we need a candidate and a party that doesn't need your money. We need to put them in power. And once they get into power, they need to regulate you guys and regulate your political oligarchy out of existence. We've just heard clips today, starting with Jim Hightower examining how the wealthy feel about their wealth. Off-Kilter spoke with Michael Linden about how a wealth tax works. The Majority Report discussed Bernie's proposed wealth tax and the defenders of the wealthy at Fox News. The Young Turks looked at the pushback Elizabeth Warren is getting from Democrats who oppose a wealth tax. Start Making Sense discussed the 2020 Democratic field and who supports who. The Brian Lehrer Show talked about the idea of big Democratic donors looking elsewhere if Warren gets the nomination. Strange Days spoke with Anand Gerardas, who was featured heavily in our episode from a few months back about the counterproductive nature of progressive philanthropy. Check that one out if you missed it. In this clip, he was speaking about how the way to make a real difference in the vast majority of people's lives really does require making life just a little bit worse for those who currently have too much. And finally, we just heard R.J. Escal on the Zero Hour giving his thoughts on those big money Democratic donors who would even think about abandoning pretty much all of their supposed principles the moment their finances are put at risk. Uh, and now, uh, this is where I would normally say what the members are going to be hearing on the member show, and then I would parlay that into uh, saying that this is where we're going to hear voicemails from you. Uh, I have neither of those things uh, to talk about today. The, the honest truth is I don't think I'm going to be able to get out a bonus show today. And then just coincidentally, we don't have any voicemails to play. I, I, I very much wish we did because uh, when I don't have a voicemail to respond to, I, I uh, sometimes more than others find it difficult to come up with something to talk about. And, and today I've agonized for 
quite a while, multiple hours trying to think of how to wrap up today's show. And my ultimate conclusion is that I can't muster the energy to talk about anything other than the honest truth of what's happening right now. Um, I, I mentioned in the rerun that I posted last week, you know, a lot of people skip those, I know, so I'll, I'll reiterate. I, I posted a rerun last week because of uh, what I refer to as the sunshine policy that I have, which means that if it's November, December, the, you know, the, the dark months and it's sunny outside, then I give myself permission to take a vacation day and go out and be in the sun to help, you know, ward off seasonal depression. Uh, well, obviously, you know, there's a new show out today, so I, I didn't invoke the sunshine policy, but the the underlying thinking behind that is, is still there, which is that um, th this year, I, I feel like worse than any time I can remember, seasonal depression ha has hit me like super suddenly and harder than then at any point I can recall, you know, in years past, I've certainly dealt with just like what felt like moodiness or mild depression. And maybe this is similar or the same. Um, and I'm just not remembering how things were in the past well enough. But uh, things are um, in, well, put it this way, in reality, things are like pretty much okay. In my head, uh, things are not good. <laughs> yeah, so as I was saying, I was like, oh, you know, what What should I talk about at the end of today's show? And like, I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't muster um, the energy to, I don't know, c come up with anything to talk about but myself or like what's uh, monopolizing my uh, headspace at the moment. Recently, I've been talking about destigmatizing vacation time and, and you know, speaking proudly of how the, you know, the members of the show have stepped up and, and encouraged me to take vacation time. And, you know, along similar lines, I, I feel good about trying to destigmatize uh, mental health problems, uh, being very clear that I, I have a lot to be thankful for with my mental health. Things are pretty okay most of the time. So on the on the spectrum of mental health problems, what I deal with is relatively you know low on on the um, you know on the urgency uh, spectrum. But you know we all go through our stuff, and and whatever you're going through feels big because it's what you're going through, and you don't have a lot else to compare uh, to because you know it, it's in your head and and monopolizes your thoughts and uh, you know feelings. Now, as long as we're being honest, I uh, might as well tell you that I had to pause recording just now because I started to cry. Why? No particular reason. That's just what my head decided it needed to do at, at that moment. I'm, I'm recovered now. Um, the What I was going to say, though, is that um, all of this kicked in, you know, my, my head switched gears real soon after the daylight savings switched over. So just, you know, another little data point, little bit of evidence that that really is the, the, the cause that's, uh, that's at play here. Um, 
but I'm uh, hopeful, you know, because like it's November. So you could say like, oh, my God, are things going to be like this until March or or uh, or whatever? And I I have hope that that is not going to be the case. In years past, I have had incredibly bad Novembers, but then December turned out to be fine. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to happen again. I, I think that particular year, the weather in November was particularly gray and rainy and the weather in December was actually more clear and crisp, you know, very cold, but, but not, uh, dreary. And yeah, you know, I know that played a role, but I don't know how much. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's, uh, just November. And and then there's another element that I'm, you know, I'm just putting out there. like, this is partly just for me to talk through and, and, uh, um, things to keep in mind for myself is that I also wonder if, if I adjust, if, you know, the, the mind goes through a seasonal transition and has a really hard time at the beginning, but then adjusts to the new reality and, you know, restabilizes in, in, in a way that the, the feelings of depression and numbness and those sorts of things, um, start to go away. I, I think, I think, you know, that may have had something to do with it because I've, I've certainly lived through Januaries and Februaries with bad weather, but I, I don't recall feeling in those later winter months the way I do now. And I, I have felt this way or, you know, similar to this in November before. So that's how uh, things are going around here. If you would like to comment on on this or anything else as always you can keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 now how's this for a hard transition i have to let you know here at the end of the show before i go uh, a quick reminder that the forecast fest is your source for the latest election news from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states Every week, hosts Harry Enton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avlon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Subscribe to the Forecast Fest wherever you get your podcasts. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives now more than ever. As I've been saying, we're headed towards a fiscal cliff. I Again, I, I kind of didn't have the energy to talk about that today, but uh, that, that is still looming in, in the future. So if you want to support the show, um, please do that. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
And now, after all that, I'm still going to try to leave you on a light note with today's uh, news by Limerick. Now, for those of you who took me up on my offer to go read a bonus Limerick in the previous episode earlier this week, you may have noticed that after making a big deal about it on the show and promising that it would be there, I literally just forgot to put it in. So I have that bonus limerick for you today. At Liberix is uh, commenting on the either upcoming or just released book from Anonymous, who famously wrote the big article, you know, from inside the White House. And please, you know, I'm aware of it. Excuse the ableist uh, language in this. I don't know the intention of the author, but I'm going to forgive it for the sake of rhyming just this once. An upcoming tell-all will show the president's lower than low, vindictive, insane, corrupt, inhumane, and more things we already know.